hey mate, if inflation is the problem, then uh, rates are going to go up and long bonds are going to collapse. Okay, guys, how much? 600 billion. Let's print 700. The essence of monetary policy, the whole reason why it worked, is because we had independent central banks. If I was to summarize the last 10 years, I would say it was the transformation of risk-free interest into interest-free risk. Even though the world finds itself in various states of lockdown, the wheels of the global economic machine continue to turn, albeit at an ever-slowing rate. In this series of conversations, I'm joined by some of the best and brightest minds it's been my pleasure to befriend over the last 35 years to try and gain some insight as to what we can expect the coming months to bring. Will equity and bond markets bounce back? Does a blizzard of multi-trillion dollar stimulus packages mean that central banks have finally reached the end of the road? And if so, what happens next? Is the world facing an even greater depression? Or is a return to the inflationary spiral our likely future? From markets to mortgages, from policy to politics and everything in between, please join me for the 2020 Humanar series. The 15th Humanar featured the brilliant Diego Perilla of Quadriga Asset Managers in Spain. Diego and I first met in Singapore a decade ago, and in that time, he's become a good friend and with his engineering background, a tremendous brain to pick about not just markets in general, but gold and oil in particular. His books, The Energy World is Flat, which he co-authored with Daniel LaCalle, and most recently, The Anti-Bubbles, offer important investment frameworks for the world in which we now find ourselves, and I was delighted to get this chance to speak with him. So please welcome my friend, Diego Perea. There he is. Hi, mate. How are you? Very well, thank you. Good to <laughs> see you. Now, to be here. Oh, now this is this is uh, it's very kind of you to do this at this time. It must be what ten o'clock at night in Spain. Yeah. So it's it's just I guess just just before dinner time for you then I would imagine. Now I did an early one today, <laughs> London uh, London time. <laughs> so look, um, uh, there's there's so much to talk about, and um, you know, I, you you are someone that whenever I get the chance to talk to you about. Um, anything i grab it but particularly oil and um and gold now you, the the first conversation like this we had was in front of the real vision cameras back probably five years ago i guess in, in singapore right. um mm -hmm. and you talked about the book you co-wrote with daniel lacal the energy world is flat which was um a fantastic book uh, for anyone out there that hasn't read that um the energy world is flat by diego Perea and um and daniel lacal is a great read um so you know, the, the framework you laid out in that conversation was was fabulous and, and influenced a lot of people's thinking around uh, oil as as uh, the oil infrastructure as the new broadband. Um, you've since written another book called uh, The Anti-Bubbles, uh, and I definitely want to get into that. But but realistically, what I want to do is a little different um, to some of the other homilars, and that's really turn this over to you to talk about these things. Um, because I know that there's there's a bunch of stuff that you want to talk about. So if it's okay with you, I'm going to kind of turn this over to you and I'm going to kind of butt in at annoying places when I've got questions for you, if that's okay. Okay, listen, thank you for the opportunity. And, and obviously, uh, energy and, and, and gold are, are critical. And uh, But I think, you know, our discussions have always been very fundamentally focused and, and pretty much all the feedback we've got 
very often was was also about implementation. Yeah. It was, you know, we talked about gold and, and there were lots of follow-up questions on should I do the miners, you know, do we buy options? And likewise on the energy side. And I think if we could balance things out a little bit, um, I think it'd be interesting to cover a few um, key concepts I think that are important and uh, even, you know, they've always been, but in, in light of recent developments, I think they're even more more relevant. So I, I yeah, I think uh, there's a number of uh, topics. I, I would probably, if I can share the screen and, and yeah, share a few yeah, ideas. Please. Please do, um, yeah. and, I, and I would start, um, you know, one, one of the key ideas that I'd like to, to share perhaps is uh, this concept of um, uh, false diversification. And uh, we live in a world where, you know, the, the thesis of the anti-bubbles, which I'll cover in a minute, uh, talks about assets that are artificially expensive, assets that are artificially cheap, and how they can lead us into a lot of trouble. And I think in that sense, we see how uh, artificially low volatility and correlation have been, have been amongst uh, those. And uh, being Spanish, maybe I'll use a number of uh, analogies. Uh, I'll bring, for those who don't recognize this, this is a, a football or a, or a soccer pitch. And I think, uh, you know, one of the critical ideas is that uh, when you think about your investment portfolio, uh, it's very useful to think about it as, as a team. So it's not just about the individual merits of, of the, the strategies or, or the components. It's also how they, they play as a team. And uh, obviously, it's a situation where you as the <laughs> you know, investor or CIO uh, are the coach. And when uh, you have a, a plenty of alternatives, you know, whether it's internal or, or external strategies to, to, to implement this, but I think it's critical to understand uh, that investment success is really about capital preservation, first and foremost. And that is the, the defense part of the game. And uh, there's also an important part of the game, which is more the offense, which leads with uh, you know, compounding on that capital preservation. But I think we must understand these objectives in the right order. It's all about uh, capital preservation because when that's not there, it all falls apart. It all falls apart. So I think this idea of compounding, whether it's through income or, or capital gains, is, is critical. And I think this is something that I'm going to reiterate over and over and, and some of the considerations as we, as we live in, in, in a highly uh, dangerous and, and, and volatile world. And I think one, one of the ideas here is you know, uh, as a byproduct of the thesis of the anti-bubbles is that lots of people uh, have portfolios that are, if there was a football team, they would be effectively playing with 10 or 11 strikers. We're talking about equities, we're talking about credit, we're talking about high yield, emerging market, commodities, private equity, private debt, real estate. The whole team, we get this sense that we are diversified because we have a bunch of different things in the portfolio. But the reality is that you're just playing striker. You have effectively everybody in the team is looking to do the same thing. It's all about scoring goals. And that's the, the mindset when, uh, in a way, the, the referee is, is on your side. <laughs> you have the complacency <laughs> that mommy and daddy, you know, the central banks and the governments, every time there's, there's some trouble, uh, they, there they come to, to the rescue. And therefore, we've lived in this idea that, you know, it's, it's, it's all about buying the dip. It's all about just, uh, you know, you look pretty stupid when you are uh, trying to, to, to do other things. 
And, and I think, you know, I often hear this idea that cash is my defender. And I say, not really. Cash is a striker in the bench. I mean, you, it's not going to make you money in a crisis. Not all it's doing is you're putting money aside uh, with the hope that you will buy another striker. So that, that uh, and, and as a good uh, striker in the bench, if you leave him there for a while in, in an inflationary environment, for example, or others, this uh, he's going to suffer from atrophy. And I think cash yeah. is, is, is a consideration. Um, I, this is one of, you know, the other major dramatic implications of a world of, of negative interest rates, which is uh, the Bund, you know, the German Bund. I call him Franz Beckenbauer. For those who are familiar with, uh, with football or soccer, he's this legendary a footballer who, who won a World Cup with uh, West Germany, I think, <laughs> That's right. from that time in 74. But he, he's now 74 years old, right? So the idea that your 60-40 balance portfolio, it's going to be, uh, you know, you have your defenders being uh, uh, fixed income, government bonds. Unfortunately, uh, in, you know, in, in a world where interest rates were at 5%, your 10-year bond if rates went to zero, it would make you 50% in a crisis. In a world where you're already at zero or negative, the room for the bond or treasuries for that matter, or JGBs to do some defending is pretty much minimal. And whoever thinks that you might see uh, rates at minus 5%, I think is delusional. I think we're in a situation where it's more likely that Germany borrows 5 trillion at yeah. minus one, uh, that 1 trillion at minus five. That's just not happening. And I think in that sense, you know, this, this also poses a question for many of us in the industry, and I've, and I've been quite critical of this, of the idea of decorrelated strategies, you know, things like trend followers, where they've been sold or sometimes even missold as defenders, when in reality, uh, they've been, you know, <laughs> at the time when you needed the most, they were attacking like, like crazy. So in that sense, I think the, the, the context of the anti-bubbles is, is critical. The idea that we need defenders and goalkeepers, I think it's, it's very, uh, very relevant. And it, and it also ties in with, with other ideas, such as you know, the concept of timing. Because back to you being the coach, lots of people think, yeah, I can play with 11 strikers, then panic comes, you try to have 11 goalkeepers, and it, it doesn't really quite, uh, quite work that way. So I think these are some... Uh, uh, really important concepts, I think, that lead that I, I would like to get people to think a little bit about, you know, how uh, the hidden risk between the fact that you think you're diversified and in reality you're not. Yeah, I mean, look, it, it's, it's really interesting because the, uh, and I think it, it makes sense perhaps at this point to just, in very broad strokes, just paint the anti-bubble theme, because I think it, the anti-bubble thing that you've been talking about now, um, you know, for a couple of years, is is just it's a great way to talk about it. And some people watching will be familiar with it, and some people won't. But just just quickly give us the broad strokes of that, because it's an important concept to grasp. Sure, um, I think it's it's uh, it's very relevant, and I think the, the thesis around it is 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 gone a little bit like the first book. You remember when we uh, first were talking about the flattening of the energy world. Uh, when we published the book, oil was at 120. We had a 200 peak oil. Everybody was in that mindset. And, and we were talking about the flattening of the energy world, 30 to 50 oil, the convergence across energies, the yeah. convergence across regions. And that kind of science sounded like science fiction. So it's it funny it, how... Uh, yeah. It's funny how you go to the airport and you see my book and it's gone from science fiction to kind of current <laughs> affairs to <laughs> almost history. 
and I think there's something similar happening here with the with the anti-bubbles. You know, the idea. Uh, you know, when I published this article in the front, front page of the FT, talking about three to five thousand gold and talking about the concept of anti-bubbles. Uh, at that time, it really, really sounded like science fiction, a bit less today. And, and just to elaborate on the concept, I, I, I'd like to borrow uh, George Soros' definition of, of bubbles. And he talks about bubbles as assets that are artificially expensive based on a belief that happens to be false, what he calls a misconception. So basically, the emperor has no clothes. Okay, you just wake up to it and, and these things happen either very suddenly or through a, what he calls a twilight period. What, what I did is I generalized Soros framework and I said, okay, fair enough. Misconceptions can distort reality, but not only through artificially high valuations, which we call bubbles. You could also distort reality through artificially low valuations. So in that sense, the first dimension of the concept of anti-bubble it's assets that are grossly artificially cheap based on a misconception. The, in that sense, you could think about it as, a, as, a, as an extreme case for, for value. The second dimension that is very powerful is to understand that given a misconception, we have effectively bubbles and anti-bubbles are like distorted mirror images of the same process. They are exactly this, driven by the same misconception. So by construction, the moment the bubble bursts, it's also the moment the anti-bubble reflates yeah. because they're the same process. So in terms of having an effective hedge, you have a synchronous catalyst and you have synchronous timing. And so I called it anti-bubble a little bit like an antivirus. And I honestly thought more about the computer type <laughs> than right. COVID uh, yeah. at the time. But it's but and and then or an, an anti-missile, so as a defense mechanism against the, this this bubble. And there is a third element that is also very powerful, which is the idea that bubbles and anti-bubbles sort of feed on each other. And there's an element of uh, you know getting paid while, while you wait. And I think you know one of the key examples that I uh, I'd like to share is the S&P and the VIX. To me, the S&P and the VIX is a very clear bubble anti-bubble relationship where artificially high prices on the S&P are partially driven by artificially low volatility. So this is both true due to qualitative considerations, such as complacency, the idea that mommy and daddy are there, that there's no risk, and even if there was, they come and rescue us, as well as quantitative reasons, such as systematic volatility selling and hidden short volatility strategies such as CTAs or uh, risk parity or others that uh, work until they, they, they unwind. So in that sense, what you see is periods of extreme complacency where you know, we have the VIX at 10 or even sub 10 for long periods of time supporting this perception of low risk. And I give the example of you know, driving a car at 300 miles an hour when the speedometer says 80. If you ever have an accident, boom, <laughs> what do you feel? Well, you're going to feel the real speed you were running, yeah. regardless of what the speedometer was telling you. And volatility is the speedometer of the markets. So in that sense, both the realized volatility gives you a sense that maybe my car is not vibrating. I don't have this feeling that I'm going so fast. Uh, or on an implied basis, the GPS is telling you that you've been on a straight line and, and it will continue. But the reality is you see these scenarios where things implode, volatility explodes and, and valuations collapse. But what's ironic here is that 
nobody wanted to buy puts on the S&P at 3,410 yeah. volt. Okay. And now everybody's rushing to buy the puts at 2,480 volt. So in that sense, the concept of anti-bubble gives you also this idea of taking advantage of the contrarian nature, taking advantage of the complacency and the panic. And this is something that actually, um, you know, brings in this, this uh, whole idea together. And that's really what, what we do and what we've done. So when we look at, you know, how, how do you implement this? There are obviously uh, many ways. The, the strategy that I run, you don't need to be a genius to see, you know, the, the relationship with, um, with the S&P. So uh, this has been something that is, is, is happened in a, in a, you know, where by, by design, by construction, you know, the strategy, every single crisis that we've seen, you know, whether it's October 2018, December 2019, May or, you know, August or obviously February, March, this is something that we, we've, we've uh, you know, exploded and have this, this anti-bubble uh, relationship. And the key then is also how do you do when things go against you? And I think this is obviously uh, much more complicated how to uh, generate this predictable uh, explosive returns whilst uh, protecting the, the, the capital. And I think elaborating this with, with the, the idea of false diversification, you have here just, it's not just about the S&P. In fact, the S&P is amongst the best strikers in the world. You know, if you, yeah. if you had picked uh, emerging markets or the Spanish IBEX or, or high yield or others, it would be a, 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 you know, a different situation. Um, so I think in that sense, what is very obvious and what you want and what the anti-bubble framework has given us is this is what we call a hostile market analysis. You're just looking at, you know, the S&P performance from worst to best. And then what you see is the very consistent uh, correlation of minus one with, with meaningful returns whilst, you know, trying to protect. So in that sense, I think this is, again, something that goes hand in hand and, and, and something to look at by, by construction. So, you know, anti-bubbles, we've kind of lived through the last sort of, I guess, almost 30 years now where... Um, one would imagine that the anti-bubbles are the same things every cycle, right? It's, 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 it seems as though we've had this environment. It used to be that bonds and equities would go in different directions, but we've had this kind of period where everything's gone up, essentially in tandem. And that really just leaves you with things like, like precious metals, like, um, I, I, I guess, the commodity treasuries. complex as a whole, or treasuries, but even, even those, you know, people have been buying treasuries for capital gains. So, so when you look through the, the kind of anti-bubble universe, it, has it really become a very small group of assets to, to look at? Or do you see that that, that, that group of assets will, like a, like a football team, players will come, players will go, they'll transfer things in and out? Because it, it seems fairly static at the moment to me. I think the beauty, the beauty of the framework is that, you know, when, when you try to pinpoint, oh, is this a bubble or not? I think the, the Soros mindset allows you to basically, if you look for the, um, misconception, then you have the bubble. Yeah. And, and then in that sense, it also helps explain a number of things. So for example, um, in this framework, it's very obvious. You don't need to be a genius to understand that gold is the anti-bubble of the fiat currency. Yeah. Okay. So, but it may not be, gold may not be the anti-bubble of the equity market, uh, imploding. And this is where some people actually get confused sometimes because they say, Diego, um, you know, equities are down and gold is down. It's like, you know, we don't understand. As, as if they, yeah, right. As, as if they were, you know, so in some ways you need to understand 
the process. And I think here what is critical, and, and, and in some ways, I think there's also been you know, a change in the rule of the games. I, you we're all familiar with uh, Adam Smith's sort of invisible uh, hand. And I would argue that a world where you have distortions because the market just, you know, got carried away through uh, irrational exuberance or, or other ways that eventually the market actually finds its way. But I would argue there's also the visible hand of the markets where these misconceptions, you know, uh, actually become reality and they're forced upon us. Okay, so I think they, this is very critical to understand that, you know, and this is where a lot of people are very puzzled because at the end of the day, what's happened, and if I was to summarize the last 10 years in one sentence, I would say it was the transformation of risk-free interest into interest-free risk. Mm -hmm. So this is really what the last 10 years were about. We, we passed a crisis without precedence, and then what happened is we went with monetary uh, policy without limits. And then amongst other things, you bring interest rate to zero, you start printing like, like crazy. And at that point in time, you know, the, the uh, belief in the central bank put the idea that mommy and daddy can solve problems by effectively, um, you know, printing and borrowing. Uh, it's, it's a big misconception because you're not really solving any problems. What you're doing is you're delaying transferring and transforming these problems. And in my view, you're actually enlarging them. But the problem is that, you know, the central bank put has been such a powerful force in, in its distortion of reality. But I would go further. It's been a change in the rules of the game, right? Yeah. Because now uh, uh, under the new rules, you know, what's happening is you've created this process by which you have... Uh, the, the, what you were pointing out, every single asset, you know, has been going up. Why? Because the central bank put has been, uh, you know, telling you on the one hand, you have massive complacency because, hey, Grant, there's no risk, mate. Just go yeah. and buy everything. And then the other hand, we've been bullied financially because you're also being told not only there's no risk, but you're an idiot holding your cash at 50 basis points negative. Yeah. So the combination of complacency and financial bullying effectively has been really powerful because us investors have looked at the spectrum of risk premia. And what we've done is we've squeezed that orange all the way in each and every single dimension you can think of. What is the first bubble we created? Of course, fixed income and duration. So effectively with zero or negative interest rates, with infinite amount of money being printed, and the left pocket lending the right pocket, so the central bank buying unlimited amounts of, of government bonds, what you've seen is you know, 30-year bonds into negative territory. So a textbook bubble in, 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 in duration, and, and without precedence, by the way. This has never happened, right? So you have people like Austria issuing 100-year bonds and, and, yeah. and everything else. What happens next is obviously the, uh, when, when Germany 30-year bonds are, are negative, then Spain starts looking great. And, you know, when Spain looks great at, you know, at, at, at 60 basis points, Greece at 2% is a steal. And so the second wave is, I would argue that this, this first uh, bubble, let's say, is the epicenter of the problem. Uh, but it's not the problem itself. That's, you know, what the problem really, really takes place when you go further down. And this second wave is credit and carry. 
So you're looking at effectively uh, lending to weaker and weaker credits for longer and longer for lower and lower yields. And you're caught in this dynamic, you know, good luck getting on the way of Spanish government bonds. Yeah, right. You know, you get crushed, right? Um, so what happens next is, and this has an implication for, for credit or for government, I mean, for credit spreads at, at uh, you know, government level, but all the way to credit and high yield and EM and, and currencies and whatever. The next thing that happens is you look at equity risk premia. Of course, you know, equity risk premia, you know, uh, you think about put called parity relationship between bonds and equities, assets that are effectively discounting cash flows and you're discounting cash flows at negative <laughs> interest rates. How much is that worth? I mean, what is the PE of Apple? You know, no, this sure. thing just goes completely nuts, right? And you keep going, of course, the, the, the whole uh, joke, or, you know, or, or the whole dynamic of, of corporate buybacks. It's, it's a no-brainer. I mean, you're giving me money for free. I lever, uh, you know, the heck out of my, my system. I get this. And that leads you, you know, investors then go and say, how many times I've gone to a meeting and say, yeah, they go, yeah, public equities, public credit, but I'm going to capture the liquidity premium. <laughs> so I'm going to go into private equity and private credit and hot potato passed around with increases amount of leverage. You know, we'll see what happens in, in when, when the, you know, but I think there's going to be fintech, which is a super fashionable word today, just like dot .com yeah. <laughs> was at one point. Let's see how that movie ends, right? But you keep going and you go into leverage, you know? And, and of course, you know, my mom goes to, to the bank and she says, I want my 5%. And they say, well, miss, um, it's quite hard. It's like, you know, high yield is paying you 1%. And you're like, okay, let's lever it up. And, and, and so you end up levering up in, in that fashion. And then you go into things like shorting volatility to create income strategies. Yeah. And the whole system, what you see is that after you, as you've squeezed that premium across every single asset, you end up with a price distortion that has created this problem. Because as we just discussed, the fixed income is no longer, the correlations don't, don't hold, the risk reward is not there. And, and we end up in this mess. And so the, the, the outcome of, of this thing is very simple. It's bubbles that are too big to fail. And this is really what happened in Q4 2018. The, the Fed, you know, look, if someone gave me a trillion dollar mortgage at zero, I can afford it. <laughs> okay, anybody can afford it. But if interest rates go to 0.1%, then you're gone, right? Yeah. So this idea that governments can borrow ad infinitum and corporates, and then suddenly you can normalize things. I mean, you realize that as interest rates go up, you can't afford the debt. Well, and well so, let, let, let me ask you about that, because this is very interesting, because we all kind of know that, right? That, that, that's pretty obvious to everybody. And yet it's, it's, it's worked and they've managed to keep the lid on um, rates, which they've had to do. And anyone that looks at this, to your point, knows that rates can only rise to a certain degree. And once they get past that, all hell breaks loose. So when you talk about anti-bubbles being, you know, you kind of look for the greatest misperception. You know, I would argue that the, the, the greatest misperception potentially is the one that believes the Fed can control the outcome of this ultimately. And, and when you get into that, if that is the biggest misperception, and I'm, I'm happy to be talked out of it, but I'm, I'm going to take some convincing. 
But if that is the biggest misperception, then it's 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 not it's ephemeral, right? It's not something you can quantify. It's it's purely a matter of confidence. Does that does that corrupt the signals? Does that make it harder to figure out the anti bubbles because it's not one asset what, class versus another? No. What happens is is you end up in a world that is highly polarized. Okay, you are once you are in a world where you're dealing with artificial prices. Um, so what what are what are the anti bubbles? Okay, what are what are things? And and let me make a distinction. So you know you you have something that I would call a bubble. So it could be the price of of an uh, let's say a bond, and you have something that I would describe as a, an inverse bubble, which is the yield in that bond. That that really is the same thing. A bubble and an, and an inverse bubble is, is exactly the same product. When I'm talking by anti-bubble, I'm talking something different. I'm talking about things that are properly artificially low right. because they are distorted. And in order of importance, and just to name a few, I would say volatility, yep. correlation, and going to your point, inflation, Okay, which effectively leads to this trap where we're in, which leads us into currency wars without limits, then, then trade wars, and eventually things like gold farther down the line. And I think the, the biggest misconception, and, and, and this is a bit of a, a, a trick or a game they're, they're, they're playing. I mean, the whole idea of monetary policy and, and how through history we were, you know, our grandparents and our parents and, and us took comfort slowly from accepting some form of paper that was no longer gold and no longer backed by gold and you could print. Now we are comfortable with paper, <laughs> but somehow we're uncomfortable with, with a credit card or a Bitcoin. And, 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 and in, in that sense, that process has been removing us farther and farther and farther away. But the essence of monetary policy, the whole reason why it worked is because we had independent central banks. And the minute that independence is, is challenged or gone, you know, quis custodiat ips custodes, they say in Latin, yeah. right? Who police yeah, exactly. the, the police? Yeah. We're in a situation where, um, you know, I would argue that the conventional, if you play this game using the conventional rules of the game, what it basically said is, hey, mate, if inflation is the problem, then uh, rates are going to go up and long bonds are going to collapse. If you do that, you're likely to go bankrupt. Why? Because the rules of the game have changed. Yeah. The enemy is no longer inflation. The enemy today is the bubbles. And central banks understand that. And they are effectively selling us the story that the enemy is deflation. And in fact, the, the way I think about the inflation-deflation debate is <clears throat> short-term deflation, which is real. I mean, we're going through the biggest yeah. shock ever. But you have also many other deflationary forces, right? Whether it's uh, technology or demographics or just the bubbles themselves and the overcapacity that you create and, and other things. And the ironic thing of this is that the more deflation you have in the short term, the more room you give central banks to abuse the system and more inflation you will have yeah. later. So this is like somebody who has a salary and is a gambler. Right. It's almost like the more salary he has, the more he can go and gamble away. Right. And, and in that sense, this is part of the bubble anti bubble is going back to your point is, is the idea that, yeah, you know, what, what is the, 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 the belief and, and the belief whether central banks can actually hold this or not. To me, 
to me, it's an absolute certainty that, uh, well, that's a big statement, <laughs> but I would say that the, the way we have already passed the point of no return. And what I mean by that is that we've, we're so far down the line with the size of the bubbles and the problems and the outstanding debt and the liquidity that even if the virus goes and even if things get better, this liquidity and this MMT, it's not going away. Right. And the, it, it is the only way out will be through some sort of um, uh, inflation. And I think this is, uh, it, it raises, you know, today is maybe a non-consensus uh, or at least is highly debatable, but I think it's, it's, uh, it's probably one of the bigger dynamics. And, and, and if I had to summarize the next 10 years in one sentence, I'd say from bubbles that are too big to fail into inflation. But be careful because there are scenarios and this is where the anti-bubble framework was calling for a big event where, you know, when you have bubbles, there are really two, two main scenarios. Either bubbles fall by their own weight. So guess what? We got carried away in credit and emerging markets and things collapse. And this is what I would call a conventional bubble blow up. We've seen a few yeah. uh, in, in our lifetimes. The other extreme is bubbles are too big to fail. And I will do whatever it takes to prevent those bubbles from happening. And I will just print and land and bail out like crazy. And eventually the bubbles don't implode, but the currency goes and inflation goes. But there's a, a middle scenario, which is the anti-bubble pricks the bubble. And this is exactly you know, what happened in Q4 2018. It was actually artificial volatility, which uh, you know, as, as, as it goes, it pricks and exposes all this false diversification, all this hidden leverage in the system. Yeah and creates a process that is very difficult to stop. So uh, I think in that sense, the reason why I'm very pessimistic about that is the system is designed to go this way. You know, the only reason we have negative interest rates in Europe is the US, the Fed, had interest rates at zero. It's as simple as that. If the Fed had had interest rates at 2%, we would have never, ever, ever had negative interest rates in Europe. It's just a game of, okay, how do I pass the problem to my neighbor? How do I artificially you know, devalue my, my currency? Yeah. How do I build my way into a competitive? And, and I think this is a dynamic that becomes, it's monetary policy is a relative game and it's a contagious game. It's a contagious game because obviously BOJ and then, you know, even, even South Africa is doing QE. I mean, it's whatever, you know. So I think in that sense, this game is almost unstoppable in the currency wars. And then it leads you to its mirror image. What's the mirror image of currency wars? Trade wars. Why? Because I say, hey, Grant, uh, I really think you should uh, keep your currency in control, you know, you should not artificially devalue, uh, you know, the yuan or or whatever. And so, at the end of the day, you've been printing like crazy. You're, you know, so the, the, if you want to devalue by twenty percent, there's nothing I can do, but I'm going to tariff you by twenty percent. Yeah, and that's game over. That's game over for China. And this is, I think, uh, the 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 trade-off in 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 currency wars has always been their positives and negatives, right? The positives for China have been, oh, I'm more competitive, I'm cheap, send me your factories, send me your jobs, send me your technology, thank you. And yeah, I might have effectively a lot of 
uh, money printed in uh, artificially cheap currency, which leads into you know real estate infrastructure bubble and and uh, and inflation. But that's a price I'm willing to pay because I'm getting all this in return. Yeah. But the minute you get checked, you know, like <laughs> check on your on on this through trade wars, then it's pretty much game over because you're left with the inflation and the bubbles, and you lose your edge. And I think. In that sense, you know, the, the, the COVID, you know, the idea, it, it will have many implications still early to tell, but I think we've seen some bottlenecks in the system. We've seen reliance. And I, I, I think the situation was not great for China. I, I am, it's my least squared in the book. Yeah. And I think the yuan is, is a time bomb, is, is, is one of those things, is the way uh, I think China will implode. And it's, it's, a, it's a tail risk. Uh, black swan, gray swan, whatever you want to call it, that it's it's huge and that people are not paying close at, uh, enough attention. And it's giving you an incredibly good entry point, artificially low insurance cost because of volatility and potentially major consequences. So I think it's so entangled the whole thing that it's very difficult to, 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 to put a beginning and an end, but it's all leading us, I think, in the same direction. Well, let's let's flesh that out because there's there's been a lot of ink spilled, a lot of time spent discussing the yuan and and the likely path of it and and why China would do it, and and most of that conversation has been around it being a, a deliberate decision, that a choice that they would make. But from what you're saying, it feels as though it's going to be the end result of a set of circumstances that are unfolding that leaves them with no choice. So, so just flesh out your thoughts on the yuan, uh, kind of a, a, a time frame, if you can, and how you think the dominoes might fall. Well, it all starts, in my view, with, with China being a semi-open, by, you know, semi-closed economy, because they, they do trade with the world, but they don't, they don't do it in complete free fashion. So at the end of the day, we've had uh, currency you know, controls and, and the interest rate is pegged. And the minute, the minute you start fixing certain things, you know, it, that domino has implications across the board. You know? So the, the minute you want to control your, your FX rate, that creates certain interest rate differentials. It creates shadow banking. It creates lots of, uh, of things down the line. So the first point I would make is, is, is depending on whether you see the glass half full or half empty, it's, it's a semi-open or, or, or semi-closed economy. The formula that China has used over and over every time they are in trouble is print, lend, and bail out. Okay? There was a tweet a few weeks ago when I, you know, you may, you may have seen uh, people were posting, uh, China injects $7 billion into the banks. And I replied immediately and I said, no, they didn't. They injected 50 billion yuan. <laughs> they didn't I inject $7 yeah, billion, dollars. they injected that. 50 billion yuan. And you need to understand this dynamic because they can print yuan, but they cannot print dollars. And those yuan that you print cannot leave because of the currency control and, and exchange. And, and they need to flow somewhere like water. So it's Spain 2007. It's this artificially cheap money, this liquidity, it's finding its way to real estate, infrastructure, and others. And I think, you know, when, when you look at this, uh, this dynamic, um, two plus two, as far as I know, equal, equals four. <laughs> and, and effectively, you have a situation where... You know, I'm not going to get into conspiracy theories of 
accounting and others. Oh, come which, on, man. Which, which no, I could, nothing wrong with a conspiracy which, theory. Which, which I could. Uh, but, but I think, you know, the, 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 way, the way intercompany things work, you know, you, you might be exporting copper. That copper may be, you know, that transaction in dollars and copper, where do those dollars sit, whether it's offshore, onshore, the intercompany loans, how things are being lent and, and uh, mortgaged. So uh, unfortunately, I think, and, and I don't think I'm the only one here, I don't think that the Chinese numbers are necessarily that trustworthy on, on themselves. And if you think about the 2008 crisis, the beginning of the end of 2008 were the stress tests. We sat down around the table and it was, okay, so Mr. Goldman, how big is the bank? How big is your hole? Mr. JP Morgan. And they were like 100 billion, 150 billion, 200 billion. So, okay, guys, how much? 600 billion. Let's print 700. That's really how the beginning of the end of Lehman finished. Can you give me a sense, <laughs> plus minus a few trillion dollars, of what the hole is in China with you know, the, the, the shallow banking, the, yeah. probably the bad loans, et cetera. And there is, in my view, no, no way out. And I think here, you know, the, the, how the Chinese safe face and how this happens is difficult to put a timeline. And, and I think, you know, the, 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 the crisis right now is in a way is obviously slowed exports, but also imports and other considerations. But, but I think the Yuan uh, you know, we're not talking about a small devaluation. I think if and when they happen, and I, I don't really have a crystal ball, unfortunately, but we are, we're looking at major moves. And, and I think, you know, it's, it's 850, it's 9, is 10. The longer it goes, the bigger the hole, uh, the, the, the bigger this, this could happen. Uh, and I think it's, you know, we were talking about 30 to $50 oil at 120 and 200 peak oil. And again, uh, this is kind of a similar situation where people look at these calls and say, oh, my God, uh, it, it sounds pretty crazy. But I think it's, it's, it's probably the way in which it, it unfolds. And, uh, and, and it's, it's hard to see, I think, personally. Uh, but I mean, I'm, I'm happy to be convinced differently. But I, I think it's, it's a dynamic that it, it's, it's going to be one of the major uh, macro risks to, to monitor as, as we continue. Now, is it, is it a reflection of the strength of the dollar? Is it a reflection of problems in China, or is it kind of a, a, an amalgam of the two? It's a bit of both. I mean, let's 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 think about what's happened this year, okay? And in my Bloomberg, I I have um, I don't know twenty five emerging market currencies that I follow, um, and something I love to do is when I go in every morning, I actually look at the I rank them from best performing to worst performing. And I literally move the things up and down <laughs> every day. So you're like, oh, what happened in Indonesia? It's up 2% or, oh my God, I've been traveling for three days and the ruble is down 7%. You know, you would miss that. But what is really interesting and shocking is that we're talking about a year where South Africa, Brazil, or uh, Mexico have been down 25% in the year. Yeah. Singapore, who is the Switzerland of, <laughs> of Asia, is down 5 to 7%, and the yuan is down 1%. Yeah, I mean, sure. even, even if you, you know, we forget about China being any kind of conspiracy or whatever, it's just completely nonsense. And they have lost competitiveness on a relative basis to all these guys. You know, we're talking about 25% year to date with some major uh, commodity exporters and others. Yeah. So this is a game that, you know, 
I would make take my point farther. And I think China's obsession with control, they want to show this incredibly rigid and strong uh, uh, view by, by having low volatility and controlling things. I compare it a little bit to to a, skys a skyscraper of skyscraper of concrete, okay? It may look very strong and very sturdy, but it wouldn't last five minutes in Tokyo. Right. Okay? Yeah. If you've been to Tokyo, you know uh, skyscrapers are almost rubber, right? So, and and we saw, um, you know, unfortunately Christchurch, you know, it, how they were not ready in a five point one, everything imploded. So it's almost like the obsession with rigidity. It's actually a massive fragility in my view and and when they fight this and and you have this mentality of crushing you know of course you know they, they have tools and they can crush people and they can hike rates and they can punish the shorts and they can do things but uh, we've seen this movie many 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 times i mean switzerland let the peg go and they yeah. had the printing machine <laughs> it's right. not like they were short dollars people want they could not have enough of, of, of Swiss francs, and they had to fold, let alone an economy that actually uh, could, uh, uh, could be short dollars. And so I think it, it's, it's something that uh, it's very real and it's, it's very big. And, um, and I think, you know, there's plenty of metrics that you can, you can run to show the, the dimension of, of what's happening inside. And I, I, I'm, I'm, I've been around the block a few times to know that all this uh, I'm a very cynical, skeptical about many of these things. Uh, I think it was von Bismarck that said, don't, don't trust anything from a government official until it's officially denied or something denied, like that. Yeah. So, so in that sense, I think, uh, again, it, it's, China is not the only one doing this. It's a global problem. But I think the way uh, China is, is, is doing it, uh, and going back to your question versus the dollar, I mean, I don't think the U.S. could be trying any harder to send the dollar, it's just very hard to see how hard, what else can be done, you know, to, to the point that I think it's, if you think about the dynamic of printing money and, and lending even to high yield, it's, it's brutal. And, and this takes us to the, to the whole debate of, of reserve currency. But, you know, everybody that has lent their trust in terms of the dollars and you are uh, a, a trustworthy a currency and you're not going to abuse this, they are effectively seeing how the U.S. is printing money and bailing out U.S. companies at the expense of diluting the dollar, which everybody else is paying. So there is no alternative, uh, to, uh, at least on paper today, in terms of a serious contender. Uh, look at the euro, look at the yuan. Uh, don't get me started with the yen. Yeah. Uh, so on the on the fiat currency front is, is really dire. And this is something that it is being abused, in my view. And, and this is Part of the reason why, of course, gold in particular, but real assets in general. And I think... Well, look, 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 we'll come yeah. on to gold, but, but I, I've, I've just seen the time. Hopefully you're okay to, to go a little bit over the hour because this, mm. this, this, this has just flown by. But but I, I want to talk about oil because you, you wrote the energy world is flat and you were, as you said, talking about 30 to $50 oil when it was two and a half times that and people thought it was crazy. Yeah. Obviously, you didn't... You didn't even think about negative price to oil, right? No. So, so talk a little bit about what's happened in the oil market recently, um, as you understand it, how that how that framework has cracked, how it's broken in, and what long-term implications it might have for the oil complex. Yeah. Well, first of all, um, 
the 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 main line of the book was and the last barrel of oil will be worth right. zero zero right? yeah. uh, won't be worth millions but obviously negative price has been a, in a different story um i may i may share some slides because i think yeah. I, I want to touch on, on on something here uh with respect to the um uh, let me see if it's i can find it back uh, we're basically we're looking at um let me see can't find it. Anyway, I wanted to share some stuff on um, the dynamics of the oil market. I'm going to ex uh, explain it uh, verbally. And uh, think about, uh, this is commodities 101, okay? And the thing with commodities, think about your car and your gasoline tank in the car. So you have effectively a situation where you are empty and you're a situation where you are full. Okay. Um, when you're dealing with physical commodities and particularly uh, oil, which you have to store, you are subject to this, this, this limit. So what it's happened recently is relatively simple to understand. You have uh, a massive uh, demand shock, which at the, at the peak is estimated that it impacted demand by about 28 million barrels a day, which is never seen before. And effectively, the way commodities work is if I can't consume it, um, and then I'm, uh, if, if, if effectively supply is greater than demand because demand collapses, then I need to store it. So the issue is that as oil starts to flow very, very fast, you're going to get into the physical limits of the commodity, right? Of the, of the existing um, storage. And you go into primary storage, into secondary storage, and you may even go and hire tankers you know, to store the oil. You're not want to send it anywhere. It's just a way yeah. to physically. And, but if you keep going and going and going, you're eventually filling up everything. You're, you're, you're lighter. You're, <laughs> the whole thing is full and the producers keep going. At that point, the idea is that oil prices, uh, you know, the, the, the cost of storage effectively means that obviously the spot price collapses and so does the, um, the, 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 the shape of the forward curve steepens. So if you take a point out in the curve farther out enough, everybody thinks, well, within two years or three years, everything will be stable. And that's in a way what, what we've, uh, we've seen. So we've seen a collapse of the front end driven by, um, uh, here we go, I'm, uh, I'm back. So effectively what you see is, and, and by the way, this is, this is the book. Uh, uh, so basically what you see here is, is this dynamic um, where th these were the books and where, uh, as I was discussing, we have this dynamic where uh, storage has, has limits and, and when you're full, effectively the spot collapses. What you see also is the relationship between the time spreads uh, collapsing. And this is a dynamic that we've seen happening very fast. Demand goes down. We don't really know how long it will be. Supply is above demand, therefore you need to store. Storage has limits and it can go to, to zero or, or negative. And then this is effectively a signal, but, but also an incentive. So we're asking producers, hey mate, don't give it to me. I don't right. know where to put it. Please leave it on the ground. And then effectively, one of the key uh, dynamics is once you go full, uh, it actually takes for demand to be uh, above supply for basically inventory start to draw and things to normalize. So this is a process that it becomes extremely dangerous once you go into these uh, extremes and it can take a while. This is the reason why we have OPEC effectively after 
all these back and forth and these egos <laughs> between Saudi and Russia or whatever, there was absolutely no question whatsoever that they would have to cut. Either they would have to cut uh, before, trying to prevent this from happening, or they would have to cut later, and the problem would be even worse. So to me, the view that they would have to cut was, was pretty clear. And what you see here is a snapshot of the oil curve and what I was describing. So we've seen the spot price collapsing from 50 to, to the low 20s and even negative at one point in WTI. But you see the back end is a lot more stable and we've seen things stabilizing around uh, $35. Um, I want to make a big point, and this is many people that are uh, listening uh, are effectively thinking about oil and they say, oh my God, oil is so cheap, uh, let's buy it. How do I do it? And they went and bought the ETF. Right. Now I have some bad news. And, and that's the fact that this, uh, uh, the, the, the contango in the curve and the cost of uh, storage translates into, into negative carry. How, how bad can this be? Uh, well, this is how bad it's been. So WTI, after this massive collapse at, at zero or negative, it's now just about down 20%, 28% in the year. Whoever bought the ETF is down 75% in the year. Yeah. This is what I call permanent loss of capital. Okay. Permanent loss of capital, you know, I, I could tell you many ways, but you bought a 10 uh, bedroom house. Uh, and in order to pay the mortgage every month, you need to sell one room. <laughs> right. right. At the end of eight, nine months, you are sitting in a house where you have only one room left. So effectively, these guys have been selling oil at low prices to pay for the storage of that oil. Yeah. And what it means is that, grosso modo, they started the year with 100 barrels. They have 25 barrels today. So the price would have to go up four times yeah. in order to catch up. And I think this is something that it, I wanted to emphasize alongside with the, with the outlook because lots of people were right thinking, oh, it can't be negative and whatever, but the market's not that stupid and there are reasons why this happens and this ETF is, is super, super dangerous. So I think the other consideration is WTI versus Brent. So I would be a lot more, less nervous dealing in Brent because uh, WTI has been, has been landlocked. Uh, but if we look beyond this into the, um, into the uh, oil picture, and just to complete the commodity 101 lesson, uh, the first, uh, the, the third graph that I wanted to share is, is the relationship between volatility and storage. So we've seen the relationship between prices, time spreads, and, 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 uh, and volatility. So we are going to be in an incredibly volatile environment for the foreseeable future. Okay. Now, if you ask me about the, the prices and what do I think is going to happen, you know, the view is that the rebound has been a little bit too much. The market is, there's been a number of things that have uh, turned around uh, the expectations, you know, with, with May uh, basically settling uh, or having negative prices. The expectations were that June was going to be even worse. In fact, it was so dreadful that there's been a bunch of changes in the market. So starting from pipelines and logistics through obviously supply destruction, to the, G, the GSCI and all the ETFs changing the rules, rolling farther out on the curve to avoid this. And there's been a massive speculative position in, in, uh, in time spreads. And we've seen 
the absolutely unbelievable, which is May, July, June, July going into backwardation. This yeah. is just, it gives you a sense of how completely and utterly crazy <laughs> these markets are. Volatility in crude oil has been 800%. We've had 50 cent puts trading at $2. I mean, this is just absolutely uh, phenomenal what's been happening uh, recently. So I think we are in a situation where uh, on a global basis, uh, you know, there's been a pickup in demand. Uh, I think uh, ironically and counterintuitively, the China uh, the increase in demand is actually people driving more in their car and taking less public transport. So we've yeah. seen a massive pickup of, of, uh, of, of, of gasoline demand. And people don't want to be in the bus with <laughs> this risk of having it. I'd rather go in my car happy. So ironically, you know, obviously the, on the jet fuel side, things remain very, very dire. And then on the diesel side, China, for example, is on a mission to get farming uh, to avoid uh, problems on the, on, the, uh, uh, on the food side. So, so what we've seen is a combination of factors. Things have improved a little bit on the demand side. There's been a bit of uh, supply uh, destruction, but we're not out of the woods. Okay, the uh, market today is pricing some sort of recovery back to pretty much normal life yeah. in the very near future. So any uh, impact on on the demand on on the medium term or short to medium term would actually pose risks on on the on the short term. But on a medium to long term basis, you know, this this forward prices around. $40 potentially could, could add value because there is a very significant uh, impact in CapEx um, and the very significant impact on, on credit. There's many things that, that could suffer. So, so the view is be careful with the bounce, be careful with the ETF because the contango can kill you. Um, and, and then uh, perhaps there are opportunities a little bit more attractive uh, a bit farther out. Uh, OPEX cuts were needed, but they were certainly not enough to, to neutralize the whole thing. And, um, and yeah, I think it's, it's, it's going to remain very volatile. So, so, so let's, let's, uh, let's get into gold then, because this is another, um, uh, another subject that you've covered in, in great detail and, and you write brilliantly about it. Just, just walk us through your thoughts on, on the gold market and, and where gold fits into this, uh, this anti-bubble framework. Yeah, I think... Listen, gold, going back to, to the, uh, the, the anti-bubbles and what we described earlier, um, I think what we're seeing is a dynamic that is, is very difficult to, to get out of because of the uh, monetary policy, the size of the bubbles, the amount of uh, money that is being printed. And, and, and you know, we've seen, uh, I guess, the, the damage was already done, to, in my view, it was just, you know, the, the, it's not that the COVID is just a catalyst because it's way more than a catalyst, but the damage was already done. And we have a situation yeah. where the monetary response has been just extraordinary. I mean, nothing comparable in, in, in time, in volume, and in scope. And what we've seen as well is MMT is now for real. I mean, this idea that you can increase spending, you can increase yeah. debt, and I don't, I'm not even going to increase taxes. So it's like the miracle, right, of uh, people openly talking about that being monetized and, uh, and going all the way to whatever it takes and just bailing the airlines and bailing the energy companies and bailing everything. In fact, uh, something brilliant, that I, have to, I mean, it's, it's, it's anecdotal, but going back to oil for a second, 
I love how brilliant central banks are and coming up with this, <laughs> these solutions. But one of the things that have been discussed, I don't know if you heard about this, is you know, when we're thinking, how, what do we do to, to, to bail out the, the producers? They said, okay, hey, we should use the strategic petroleum reserves. And that meant, okay, let's buy all this oil. And then yeah. somebody said, yeah, but you need to buy it and physically take it somewhere. You, you can't do that. And then they said, let's just buy it on the ground. <laughs> so they don't need to put it out. So we just print billions or trillions of dollars and we're just going to pay for the oil here. And it's, I, I love it because it just shows you how once you have the machine of printing, you can just do whatever you want and say, let's just, well, say, to, to a man with a hammer, everything looks like a nail, right? And then basically give it to the energy companies so they don't need to produce it. We hold the price. And that will be our new strategic petroleum yeah. reserve, which is now 1 billion barrels. I thought it was just brilliant. And I, and I think the point I'm making is that once they go down this route and, and you know, you're not willing or able to accept, uh, you know, crisis, the political cycle is way too short and, and things like that, you're in a situation where all this is, is, is uh, you know, effectively coming to, to inflation in one way or another. Now, it's very important to understand before we go into gold, that inflation is not really about my house going up or the price of bread going up. Inflation is about the value of the money you used to buy your house going down, the value of the money that you used to buy the bread going down. Yeah. So some people think, how can we have inflation if demand is collapsing? And, you know, we have this mindset that, you know, money is, is, is worth something, right? Dalio would argue that the intrinsic value of money is zero, right? So in that sense, what you look, when you look at gold, right. I often get the question, they go, why gold and not bananas <laughs> or oil or whatever? It's like, well, it's all real assets. It's not just gold. It's every single real asset. The difference between gold and every other real asset is that gold is the monetary asset of choice. And it has physical and chemical capabilities in a history of 2,500 years where uh, I think it, it has a meaningful uh, role, role to play in this game. And I think we're at the very early stages of, of this uh, uh, perfect storm where I, I was calling for three to 5,000 in the next three to five years. I think that's you know, potentially conservative, but it's going to be, a, it's going to be a very, very bumpy road. Um, well, so I, I think it's that, all yeah. really about, you know, the misconception or, or the mirror image of, of the fiat currency uh, bubble. And that's, and that's why the, the, the gold anti-bubble and it's, it's, it's repricing, it's um, backloaded. Okay. So you see something has to give in the bubble anti-bubble framework, if you have asset prices that are too expensive, artificially expensive, and you don't want them to collapse, there's no other choice than bring rates lower, print more money. And that effectively is resulting in things like, you know, equities up and gold up on, on the same month or relationships that, that might not be happening. But I, I think, yeah. you know, uh, I, I believe that gold has a, a meaningful role to play. And, uh, but it's going to be a bumpy road. And, and uh, I think in that sense, I recommend um, prudence, right? So uh, leveraged um, uh, exposure uh, can be very, very dangerous. I, I actually have a slide that a point I wanted to, to make on this, and it's, it relates to, to, uh, to gold. And, and this is uh, it's quite shocking, perhaps. Um, let me see if I can share it uh, again. Um, 
you're familiar with with this graph uh, I showed earlier, um, where we have uh, Igneo, the strategy that I run, and the S and P. And and what I added here is what yeah. happened to to gold. Uh, but gold is in yellow. Gold miners are in orange, and in red you have uh, something called JNAG. JNAG is a is a three three time levered ETF. Yeah, three and times. the point I want to make yeah. with this is that uh, leverage. You know, even if you have the right player on the pitch, even if you have a, a, a good defender, an asset, whether it's gold or gold miners, that could do well. I just want to show how dangerous leverage is. And, 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 and I wanted to make the point with oil, with the impact of carry and the permanent loss of capital, but also with any of these. So it would be a similar story for silver three times levered or anything else. And, and this is almost designed, if you read the prospectus, I was shocked when I read it, uh, it, it pretty much says the investor is likely to lose all its capital. And I was like, how can you say that? It's not even like, it may. Right, right. It may. It's likely. <laughs> because nobody reads it. That's why. And let's, let's do the maths. Okay? Very simple. You have $100, call it silver or miners, and that means you have uh, effectively uh, three, three times leverage. So $100 buy you 300 If you actually, if the market went up and down, 50% in one day and, and the other one goes down. It looks like a non-event, but obviously your, you know, the, the 50% increase. So hundred goes to 150, your 300 become 450. So now the day after your, you know, uh, your, your money, your, your those, uh, that, that PNL that you made your hundred dollars, you're sitting on, on 250, right? Uh, on the PNL you've made, but the $250, because you had a great day the day before, actually buy you 750 <laughs> of, of uh, equities or silver. So if 750 yeah. goes down by 50%, you are effectively pretty much wiped out uh, on the spot. So effectively, this yeah. leverage means that if the market hits a certain volatility point, you're gone. But it's, a, it's just up or down. It's almost like... So the, the funny thing about this is that ETF, this JNAG was up 150% in April. <laughs> so, for, you know, it went from uh, whatever, yeah. it destroyed 95% of the money. I think the lesson here is, listen, leverage is tricky, is dangerous, is one of the big lessons. And no matter how much you like gold, no matter how much you like the gold miners, we need to be very careful because we're going to be in a very, very volatile world. I think volatility is likely to remain high. And in that sense, some of these instruments that may like, like a very quick way to uh, becoming rich uh, or, or to make your money back can actually end in, in permanent loss of, of capital. Yeah. Listen, I, I want to jump to a few questions because uh, we've already gone over and I feel like we could talk for a lot longer. Um, two, two assets that have been mentioned a couple of times, uh, Bitcoin and silver. Uh, where do they fit Listen, in the anti-bubble uh, framework? Silver is, um, is, is second in, in line. I mean, plata is, 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 is money, right? But it's also a lot more industrial. It's also a, a much smaller market uh, subject to more manipulation. Um, so we, we like silver, we, we, we own silver, uh, but it's, it's, uh, it's like gold on steroids. So, uh, I think, uh, you know, when you try to, uh, if, if the market is already positioned and, uh, you have a big volatility event, 
at the end of the day, when, when the VIX goes to 50, uh, fundamentals don't matter. Okay. It's all about uh, forced liquidation yeah, sure. and, uh, you know, effectively that leads to, uh, to higher volatility and higher correlations and more forced liquidation. And then, so effectively you get, you, you can get into the, into the trap. So I'd be, I like silver, but I'd be careful with the leverage. Okay. Um, Bitcoin, it's, um, a trickier one because I, uh, I'm personally quite skeptical. Okay. I, I think, you know, sometimes we, uh, I, I, I am the biggest believer in technology and the power of disruptive technology. Uh, the entire book in energy was, I'm an engineer. It's all about technology and I'm not uh, claiming for a yeah, second yeah. that the current solution is, is, is good, uh, with, with fiat money or that gold would be, you know, the, the, the perfect solution either. And I can see why people want to be out uh, of the system uh, with, with Bitcoin. But I, I think, you know, if you think about the concept of seniorage, which is the difference between how much it costs to print a $100 note versus how much it's worth, this is not something central banks are going to let go and governments, <laughs> and even, even less now. So the big issue I have is I, I don't see how corporates will ever accept it. it. It's almost impossible to think that Amazon will ever accept Bitcoin uh, because it's, a, it's listed and, and publicly traded. And so I think it will be restricted to, to a private uh, world and, and it has its use. But I am very skeptical, not because of its own merits, but simply because of how much is at stake that it will ever take off. Now, having said that, there's people I respect enormously, like uh, Raul or uh, Paul Tudor Jones. I, I don't know if you read his his uh, latest. It was fantastic. I I, I loved I it. Did, yeah, the, yeah, the work. Yeah. And I but but I can't I can't help it. I'm I'm skeptical. So we we're, I'm not involved. Uh, I respect the people who do, and I think uh, it, it could go up significantly. But I, I'm just very uh, skeptical on whether it will be the the ultimate solution. Okay, let me, let me rattle through a couple of others. Um, a good one here that came in early. How do you, well, I'm going to sneeze, hold on. How do you buy cross-asset class correlation for the crisis movement towards one when everything looks either zero or inversely correlated? Well, there are many ways to trade uh, correlation. Uh, the, the, the best way is, you know, let's, let's take one example. So let's say um, gold, um, you, you can trade gold in dollars and uh, you could also trade gold in euro. If you trade them linearly, then there's, there's no correlation. But if you buy options that are gold in euro, then uh, yeah. you are effectively uh, taking advantage of the price of that option. It's implied from the gold vol and the, uh, the, the, you know, the, the uh, euro dollar vol and the, the forward and, the, and basically the, the implicit uh, correlation. So you could think about a scenario where the market believes that gold and the euro are uh, the same thing, they move up and down together, that would be a scenario where if, if the volatility is the same and the correlation is plus one, the volatility of the spread is zero. Yeah. When you have one asset that is more volatile than the other, then the impact of, uh, you know, effectively you still have the residual volatility. But the sweet spot of correlation is when you find two assets that have similar level of volatility and very high implied vol. Because what happens then is the market says, listen, uh, gold and euro are the same thing. 
and therefore yeah we had this with the yen right we had that long period of the yen where gold and the yen did exactly they're, they're doing the same thing and then what happens is and and if i had a chart you know i, I would draw it <laughs> i will get back to back to school but it's 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 a beautiful relationship it's a kind of a pythagorean pythagoras relationship so you, you think about vectors and the volatility of asset one volatility of asset two if they offset each other the resulting volatility is zero so if you have two assets of equal volatility and correlation minus one, the volatility is zero. If on the other hand, the volatility was exactly minus one, the vectors, yeah. the vectors would add up. So the volatility of the spread would be exactly twice. And if volatility yeah. was zero, it's Pythagoras. Okay, so you have the, uh, the, the relationship between them. Uh, so what happens is that when you're able to buy the uh, uh, low volatility and high correlation, you're sitting on this thing that looks completely harmless, <laughs> like a, a, a gold call in euro. And then when things blow up, you get Boom. Yeah. vector one explodes, volatility of gold. Vector two explodes, the volatility of euro, and the correlation breaks. So you go from something, and this is how we generate options that are, you know, five to one, ten to one, twenty to one in payout, because we look for those correlations. And the dollar and gold is is a beautiful relationship that we like to mm -hmm. exploit. Okay, uh, one on China here. Um, if uh, if the if yuan depreciates to nine or ten as you as you suggested it could do, what implications does that have to both the Chinese economy and the broader global economy? Well, for the global economy, is 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 bad news. Is is ultra uh, deflationary. Um, but I think it it would be uh, there could be meaningful implications beyond trade and, and other things. So I, I do think, you know, we've thought a lot about this. Is, is, it, a, is it a process that happens um, smoothly? Uh, and we had seven as the, as the big almighty level that we were all thinking, oh my God, if it breaks, yeah. the hell's going to go yeah. in August. Um, so I think the Chinese are facing a bit of a dilemma because once they let it go, and it becomes very obvious. You can think about all the Chinese saying, oh my God, uh, let's, let's get rid of this and, and buy something else. And so it's a difficult process, but if it happened, um, you know, in total return terms, think about is let's put it into Brexit. What happens if the pound goes to hell? Well, actually the UK housing prices stayed reasonably yeah. bid because a lot of people think about uh, things in total return uh, terms. So, you, you should think about that impact in total return uh, aspect of, of what might happen to the currency. The stock market could actually go up significantly, right? In, 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 so it doesn't necessarily imply the collapse of the system. Although in this particular case, we would see a dollar shortage and debt and other considerations because that could create further problems. And this is why it's a very tricky thing. But, you know, for China itself, um, it, it's... I think it's unavoidable. It's not good news for the rest of the world. I think is 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 bad news. It it adds on to this deflationary pressure, but I don't think people would let it get away with it. And just like oh, now you're even cheaper and send even more factories. <laughs> it's not. Yeah, it's yeah, something that uh, yeah. I think would would hurt. 
All right, mate. Listen, I'm very conscious that it's uh, it's almost 11:30 at night over there. So I, I, I'm gonna I'm gonna thank you for this. You, you've been very generous with your time uh, and your insight. It's been it's been a fabulous conversation. I've loved every minute of it. There was a bunch of stuff we didn't get to, so we're gonna have to do this again at some point. It's been my pleasure. Um, listen, I, I've had a bunch of questions and people asking in the chat and stuff about about how to invest in Quadriga if they're US non-EU. I mean, I, the best thing I can think of is perhaps if you give people your email, they can they can drop you an email. Sure, or uh, or, or, Twitter or whatever they can they can call. Yeah. So so you, I know you're you're. Your, your Twitter handle is at Perea Diego. It's two R's and two L's in Perea. Um, and just give people your email address so they can actually get in touch with you directly. Yeah, it's Diego, D-I-E-G-O dot Parilla, P-A-R-R-I-L-L-A, at Quadriga with a Q, Q-U-A-D-R-I-G-A, funds, F-U-N-D-S dot E-S. Any problem, they can go go through Twitter or whatever. Well, when I, when I send the notification out about the replay, I'll, I'll put both those in there so people have those. Mate, it's so good to see you. Um, Likewise. Again, hopefully we can do it over a nice bottle of Rioja next time. And, uh, I, and I, I, I wouldn't mind that. I wouldn't mind that. All right, look after yourself. <laughs> it's thanks, been really mate. great to see you. Thank you, everybody. Take care. Take care. Take care. All right, everybody. Well, thanks so much for joining us. Um, uh, we ran over, but uh, I certainly didn't mind, and hopefully you didn't either. Um, I've got one more of these uh, with another dear, dear friend of mine, Neil Howe, who I haven't seen since we took a little jaunt around Washington, D.C. together last year. Uh, so all that remains is for me to thank Diego uh, for joining me. Thank you guys for watching. Uh, bid you all a good evening, good afternoon, good morning, wherever you are, and thanks so much. <laughs>